0: Welcome to the Springin' Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Parr, and this is the place to be for all things equestrian lifestyle, horses, entrepreneurship, as well as so much more. This is your insider's edition to what it's really like living in balance with your passion and your business. I'm so excited to have you guys here with me, so come along for the ride. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. I hope that you're staying warm wherever you are. And if you're in a warm climate listening to this, I'm very jealous of you. I um, have been freezing my butt off the last two weeks. It has been insanely cold, and I feel so bad for the horses. And I want to live in a warm climate, but I don't think my husband will go. I've tried, but I don't know, guys. It's like minus... Feels like minus 22 at the time of me recording this, and this has like been one of the last crazy cold days that we've had, <laughs> um, but I digress. I'm really excited. Speaking of where to live, I'm excited to bring you this podcast episode because it is with Allison Fair. She is a real estate agent and um, appraiser, and I had her on because... I always get questions about having horses at home. There's, I know that this is kind of a dream for a lot of people and it was such a relevant conversation considering the housing market in Ontario. I desperately wish that we had this conversation before I uh, was shopping for properties with my husband um, because there was so much juicy information packed into this hour. If you are considering moving, selling, buying uh dreaming on your vision board of having horses at home one day or buying a rural property or um a couple acres and specifically this was for ontario we got into some numbers and processes but it's good for comparison for people listening from other areas as well uh because i just think it's very interesting how different the housing markets are compared to locations um so we talked all things You know, the the market and how the pandemic has driven prices up and millennials that are stuck not being able to get into the market, renting versus buying, leasing, boarding farms, insurance, um, the logistics of owning a country home, taxes, appraisals, how everything works. And I felt like it was so informative. You guys are really going to like it if this is at all in your area of interest. I'm so excited um, to have other people on the podcast that are covering different topics like this. She balances her career. She talks about it at the beginning, um, you know, what she liked and how she can still be involved in horses, but also have a career in something else. So I think this is awesome for anyone who wants to diversify what they're doing, but still potentially be involved in the horse industry. Please let her know. If you liked it, I will leave all the links down below in the show notes of this episode. And as always, if you have any feedback for me, you can reach me at Spring and i I'll let you guys get into it. Have you ever halted and felt your horse stumble forward to catch his balance? Have you ever jumped into a combination, wondering if you were sitting on enough power and scope to jump out? As riders, we've all been there. Disruptions such as transitions, rider weight shifts, jumps, or quick turns of direction can leave horses having trouble regaining balance. If this sounds familiar, you need to check out Starline Equine Body Works Guide, Balancing Act. With Balancing Act, you'll learn low impact, simple, unmounted exercises that can improve balance, increase the potential for power and rideability, strengthen the muscles that support joints used for balancing, reduce the likelihood of sports-related injury, and improve reaction time. Create a competitive advantage for your horse. Grab your copy at StarlineBodyWork.com in the Learn With Us section. I always hear from so many of you that you're looking to get into the industry or into a position in a barn. And if you are an equestrian shopping for a job in this market, then I would suggest you check out Haute Equestrian. They have an equestrian specific job board, a job seeker database where you can leave your contact and resume for those looking to hire and VIP services for hiring businesses. They also offer business management solutions for equestrian entrepreneurs and have an essentials online boutique stocked with jewelry, housewares, skincare and products for your horse sourced from North America. Visit www.hopeec.com for more information. Sure. Um, so I guess, I've
1: been riding since I was little, like five or six. Um, Like most kids, I wanted a pony when I was 12. And my dad made me write a business plan about why he should buy me a horse instead of letting me uh, keep taking riding lessons. So I wrote my first business plan, which was rejected by the bank of dad. And then I found a cheaper pony, um, so that one got approved and I worked off the board where I boarded at the time. Um, and then fast forward a couple of years, I wanted a better horse. So my mom kind of wheeled this deal with the barn owner that I would trade my current pony. Plus, I don't know, I think it was like $500 that I had in my bank account for this new horse that I wanted there. And the deal was I had to sell the pony for them, but anything beyond 2,000 bucks, I could keep. And then I sold the pony for like $4,500, which at like 14 seemed like a lot of money, obviously. Um, so yeah, most of my friends were working at Tim Hortons or Wendy's or whatever. And I made 2,500 bucks doing something that I thought was a lot of fun. So from there, I guess I kind of got into buying and selling horses for a bunch of years um, all through school. And then I taught a bit, ran a little boarding barn. Um, And eventually, I don't know, much like you post on your stories, it's minus 25 and you're out there riding six client horses or it's 45 degrees and you're sweating to death riding six client horses. And I really liked the sales part of the industry um I didn't want to risk getting hurt anymore much like you know there's no workers comp when it comes to riding horses not generally anyway and I didn't agree with some of the ethics involved I guess at some of the higher levels I didn't really want to get into playing um paying under the table commissions for trainers to push your horses on clients. I just couldn't get behind that, I guess, which I think is a little better now than it used to be. Um, So real estate, I guess, let me combine my passion for people, um, the thrill of the sale, who doesn't love wandering around a bunch of different houses every day. Um, So I got my real estate license and that was about eight years ago. And then from there, uh, I've sold everything, I guess, from multi-residential to big horse farms, to little horse farms, to country estate properties, to condos. Uh, I was getting a little bit burnt out in the wild market, same as everybody else that's been shopping in this wild market, and really just wanted to have sort of my weekends and evenings back and be able to go to the horse show and not feel like I was missing out on uh, potential time in deals with clients. So I got my real estate appraisers license, which is what I do now.
0: That's awesome. So what does your career structure then look like at this time? You're strictly appraising. Is that what you're doing?
1: No, I'm still selling real estate, just not, um, for every Joe blow off the street. So, um, as a realtor or a real estate broker, um, You really have to be in the thick of it, I would say hustling, networking, whatever you want to call it, uh, to keep your business rolling, if that's your sole or primary income, which involves often a lot of working with people you don't know, which is not so much the working with people you don't know that I dislike. I love meeting new people. It's working with people that either aren't that serious or just aren't a lot of fun to work with. Um which is, I guess, part of also why I got into appraising more so than focusing entirely on real estate. Um, It just becomes mentally exhausting feeling like you have to work with people you don't necessarily vibe with. Uh, So yeah, I would say in my day-to-day structure, I probably sell eight to 10 houses or farms a year, and then I work full-time as uh, an appraiser.
0: Awesome. And then you're doing some horses on the side still or are you just doing that as a hobby now or
1: or um, more just as a hobby so I have one horse that I keep and then usually one or two projects depending on the time of year more for fun than anything
0: yeah that's awesome I think that's a really like diverse structure and that people would be interested to hear about because I I know like you said everyone can't necessarily deep dive into the world of horses but that's their passion and even sometimes salesmen. well but this is a really interesting balance because I always thought that I might get my real estate license just because of the same thing like I love talking to people and I love sales and that kind of thing so it's very interesting that you mentioned the the different parallels (laughs) but yeah I love that um can we talk a little bit about like the last two years um, in real estate and specifically in Ontario rural agricultural hobby hobby farm properties as far as um, availability and pricing and limitations and what's really been going on there?
1: Yeah so as I'm sure unless anyone listening lives under a rock knows the real estate market in Ontario specifically southwestern Ontario is wild The agricultural market, I would say, has definitely also grown as much. It's a little bit harder to track farms, statistically speaking, Um, in terms of real estate prices residentially. I think we saw a 32 percent increase from December 2020 to December 2021 in the Kitchener Waterloo region. In terms of, (laughs) it's insane! It's insane, and. Farm-wise, I think it's not quite that bad, but it's a lot harder to track statistically. There's just not not nearly as many sales. And it's a bit of an apples to orange comparison. Like we just need one big specialized like dairy farm or hog farm yeah. sold in. And it, it really skews the data to be a much higher average price than it actually is. Um, but the inventory shortage is definitely very real in the rural market, both hobby farm and just sort of like your typical half acre acre estate type lot, which definitely means still multiple offers, uh, agents listing low to try and get way above list price, which strategically makes a lot of sense for a lot of sellers. Um, It's extremely frustrating for buyers. I, I know that from an agent perspective and from a young person perspective that makes, um, makes buying a lot harder and a lot more stressful. Um, yeah. So I would say much like every other type of real estate, it's prices are climbing. I doubt we'll see a big correction anytime soon, if ever, yeah. um, you really got to have your ducks in a row if that's something you're, you're trying to do.
0: Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, I'm sure it can be a little defeating. <laughs> especially obviously for buyers in the market looking at even just trying to strategize because prices are going so high over asking um, it's hard to actually put a plan together but as far as that <clears throat> goes, there's many people listening I'm sure that are in that demographic of like not being able to get even into the market what do you have any advice for those people that are really nervous about, like, how to actually get into owning property or owning a home at this point?
1: Definitely. I think just because you can only afford to buy something small now doesn't mean it has to be a forever home. Um, I'm the first person to say moving sucks, <laughs> it's the worst for someone that makes their living off of people moving. It's not fun. But um, if the market's going to keep going up buy what you can afford now, even if you are a country farm girl at heart, and you're going to keep living at home, buy a condo <clears throat> or a town home or a small house and put tenants in it if you really want to. Um, but at least if you are buying now, as the market continues to go up and appreciate which it's going to continue to do, at least you're. Riding out that increase as opposed to just waiting to buy in further down the line. Yeah. I definitely had clients last year that said, you know, I'll I'll wait for the big crash next year. And now they're thirty two and a half percent higher. So it's not a fun situation to be in for sure.
0: Yeah, and can you maybe comment on real estate as an investment? I know that there's other people that do own properties and homes, and they're always considering you know, purchasing something as a rental, potentially, um, or even just some kind of investment property? Is that something that you see a lot of right now? Or something that you would suggest to people if they have the the means to do so that it might be a good, good investment?
1: I would say real estate is one of the best investments you can make. Um, from a professional opinion, and just from a personal opinion, I think, A lot of people in my demographic have parents that invested a lot in stocks and are seeing that not really pan out so well for them now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But their saving grace has sort of been their family home that they bought 20 or 25 years ago for a lot less money. And it's worth a lot more money now. And especially in the Waterloo Region, Wellington County, those types of areas that are going to continue to keep growing as people keep moving here from the GTA and even abroad, um, prices will continue to go up. So even though it might be hard to find something that cash flows right now, meaning that you bring in enough rent to cover all of the expenses, I think over time that will improve. And I think um, In terms of a long-term asset, if you have a tenant that's paying off all or at least most of your expenses now, 20 or 30 years from now, you have a fully paid off six or seven or a million dollar property that you're able to sell that you really didn't pay
0: much for. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Is there, so if I were to say to you, because on top of the fact that there's a lot of Canadian listeners on this podcast, we also have a lot of people that listen from the States and it's so interesting. Like I had the really awful habit of looking at properties in South Carolina, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, like what you can get for like, let's say 1.4, or 1.2 there is off the wall. Whereas here, um you're looking at a lot of different characteristics of a property size of acreage for mm-hmm. the same amount of money. So if I were to say to you, if I'm just so that the people listening from maybe that are not from around here understand kind of our pricing right now, if I want a hobby farm type home, like, and I want maybe two acres um, and a decent size bungalow or family home, whatever it might be in and around our booming area right now, what am I looking at for? possible price? I know there's so many variables, but I've, you know, give me a generalization (laughs) for people. Yeah. I
1: would say like the, the average price of a detached house in the Waterloo region is rapidly approaching a million dollars as it is in town. Um, and I think with everyone working from home in the pandemic or having kids doing School at home. A lot of people wanted to move out of the city or been able to move out of the city because now they don't have to commute to work every day, which has definitely attributed to lower supply and more demand. Uh, so I would say if you wanted a few acres, say two to five, with a reasonably decent house on it, so not not needing a ton of repairs, but not maybe the most glamorous, you're easily. to 1.5. As soon as you start adding nicer outbuildings or a larger, nicer home, more land, that kind of thing, you rapidly are above 1.5 and closer to two.
0: Yeah, which is crazy because you can get like a hundred acre luxurious equestrian (laughs) facility down south for the same amount. So it's it's absolutely interesting, I think, for people to compare. What And this might just go right back to what we talked about in terms of investing, but I know that there's lots of people that want to know the pros and cons of renting versus purchasing. Um, I think we'll just generalize that, like not, not necessarily farms, but there are a lot of forced people that desperately want to make this their business. And if we go in that direction, a lot of the times they end up leasing facilities. Do you have any opinions on that or any advice around leasing facilities?
1: Yeah, so I think the hardest part about leasing a facility, obviously, is lack of long-term control, and the problem with that is it really restricts the investment that you're willing to make. So if you are leasing a property that perhaps has really good bones, but the footing, for instance, uh, is not adequate. So by the time you pay to redo a base in an indoor and outdoor ring and then add a bunch of footing to it, you very quickly can be several tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. Um, That's a big investment, I think, to make into a property that's not yours. And to a property owner that perhaps is not a horse person, they bought it as an investment um, or perhaps they are horse people, but they've retired and they're keeping the property because they want to live in the house, not necessarily run the horse side of things, um, a lot of them are willing to make that investment. So it makes it really hard to have a facility that is in demand from a border perspective, or if you're trying to run, say, a sales business out of it, it makes it really hard to do that well when you have these restrictions on you that don't make sense from a financial perspective. Yeah. So I, I would say that's the hardest part about leasing. It certainly can be a great way to test the waters. And uh, from an initial investment point of view, if you're not doing any big repairs or facility upgrades, that kind of thing, it's certainly uh, a lot cheaper <laughs> than buying a facility. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, it really <clears throat> comes down to the margins that you have as well, because obviously you have to pay to lease and then that, goes to the people who actually are investing in the mortgage on that property or whatever it is that they are definitely Um, so it can be tricky i think for people because you know it's it's extremely hard to afford one of those places and it's an interesting topic because there's a lot of people who end up leasing farms but unfortunately there's kind of a pattern of jumping around as well because of the things that you mentioned i'm sure where people are just struggling to either afford or the price is going up or not getting the facility that they want in order to charge what they need to charge so something sure. to consider absolutely um and then I mean, it's, it's so interesting. I've learned so much the last couple of years in terms of like house shopping and home shopping and um, also like purchasing our property. Thank God, right before this insane, (laughs) insane boom. Like, I think we closed the day before we went into a state of emergency the first time. And I was like, oh my God, like, what are we doing? But it all worked out. Can we talk about um, some of the things that people might not know when it comes to more rural properties? Like water sources, septic, natural gas versus propane, wood stoves, all the things that like might really impact their, their lifestyle or their living expenses that they might not consider when they're kind of romanticizing, moving out of the country.
1: All the fun things that you don't think about. Definitely. So I think I'll start with the most unexpected, but potentially most expensive part of living rural Uh, which is your septic system. So most people if you've ridden or boarded at any horse farm. It's generally on a septic system. I think there's very few exceptions to that rule. Um, so usually you can tell that because most of them have a little sign in the bathroom that says, don't flush anything down the toilet, basically. Um, so a uh, septic system, for those of you listening that don't know, replaces your municipal sewer system. So everything from your drains and your toilets or showers, all that kind of fun stuff goes into a holding tank um, where all your solids sit. We won't, won't explain what that part is. And then the liquids go out into a, a leaching bed, essentially, in your lawn. <clears throat> um, if you take care of these properly, um, they can last a really long time, 50 or 100 years even. Um, the weeping tiles generally are what fails most often in rural properties, um, but repairing or worst case scenario, replacing these beds can be astronomically expensive, 40, 50, $60,000 to bring them up to code. Um, so I would say that's the biggest consideration when you're shopping is how old is the septic system? When was it last pumped and what the capacity of it is? So the house that my partner and I bought, um, the sellers it was just the two of them they only lived here half the year they're lucky enough to be snowbirds and um so it was functioning fine for them it's only the two of us here now but we're here obviously uh year round so it was sort of a big consideration for us um wanting to have a family in the future to make sure it was up to capacity um so that yeah i would say is the number one consideration number two is definitely your well um a lot of banks so your lender um don't like dug wells which is very common in places with high water tables and older homes which is actually a a lot of like the conestoga region around uh the city of waterloo so a lot of banks don't like that um which is a consideration if they're going to ask for you to remediate that problem which would mean drilling a new well which Varies astronom- astronomically in terms of cost based on how far you need to drill. You could be as low as twenty thousand dollars. I have a family member that built a new home and spent about eighty-five thousand dollars drilling a well and never hit potable water. So. Oh, no. Yeah. So it can go not fun, pretty fast, I would say in terms of that, but obviously it's your water source. So it's pretty important and even more so important uh, if you're going to be trying to service both a house and a barn off of that. So, um, knowing that you're going to have adequate water flow to help with that is really important. How old your um, well pump is, if you have it, like any UV or filtration systems required. So it's really important that you test your water also a couple times a year to make sure um, the water you're drinking is safe. Um, other considerations, I would say definitely heat source. Um, I personally have a wood oil combination furnace and then also a propane fireplace. So means in the summer, we cut and split a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of wood and throw it into our basin and sack it all up. And our primary heat source all winter is wood. Um, If it's maybe a little bit chilly in the morning, we would use a propane fireplace just to sort of heat up the living room, kitchen area. And then oil we use as a backup if we're going to be gone for an extended period of time, just so the heat doesn't go or so the house doesn't go below freezing and have our pipes freeze. Um, but I would say it's pretty common in a lot of rural areas not to have, um, natural gas, which obviously natural gas is generally speaking, the most efficient and the most affordable, um, gas source. If you're going to be running a furnace of any type, um, you do definitely get some rural homes with, uh, electric baseboard heat or radiant heat, though they're not nearly as common as they used to be. Um, so yeah, you definitely want to know what you're heating with. Ideally, if you have two sources, that's even better. Uh, God forbid something fails, obviously, or the price of one goes up really high. They're um, always talking about propane getting more expensive, which uh, like everything, I guess these days, gas and everything else. Um, Yeah, I would say those are the, the big things a lot of people don't think about when they're thinking about moving rural. And it's certainly stuff a lot of people aren't used to if they're coming out of living in the city.
0: Just hopping in for a sec to remind you guys, if you are looking to up your supplement game, visit madbarn.ca. You can look at all the products that they have. I have my own horses at home as well as my client horses on a bunch of different supplements depending on our horse's needs, which you can also get a nutritional analysis for your own particular horse at Mad Barn. Check out their website for more information. And if you are shopping and want 5% off of your order, you can use the code SPRINGANECK. Yeah, definitely some major considerations. I think um, though I grew up in the country, so I knew about, you know, our we had a dug well and it would always run dry in the summer and like, yep. or you can't shower and like all these. So I kind of had that whole, and we had septic. Oh my God, it was just a disaster. But we <laughs> bought house, I think tw- uh, spring 2020 and our dug well went dry in the summer with just the two of us which is really difficult because I think there was at, at one point in time <clears throat> families living in here but they don't last forever so we had to drill a well um yeah. we ended up doing in the fall and then also um one of the biggest things for us that uh, the one thing I wasn't necessarily as familiar with was the propane heating because I had the luxury when I was growing up to be accessed by natural gas so we didn't have that problem but um, I would say, you know, like even with just two of us living in a big home, we're spending anywhere from, from six to 10,000 a winter on propane. Um, sure. what's interesting for people, to <laughs> is to I don't think that that necessarily ever really runs through someone's mind when they're just looking at these properties thinking, Oh my gosh, this would be a dream. It's an, a definite added expense. And the other things I wanted to ask you about in terms of all of those other considerations that people have to make. Um, would be kind of pro- how property taxes work and other taxes or associated costs that people might not necessarily be thinking about?
1: Yeah, so your NPAC, which is your Ontario tax assessment, um, people always see this on listings when they're thinking about buying a house and they say, well, why is the tax assessment $300,000 and these people want $1.2 million for their farm? Um, and I think the big thing to realize is definitely no one is going to go to their municipal or provincial government and tell them hey i think you assessed my house too low i'd like to pay more taxes <laughs> um, at least at least i'm not doing that if anyone else wants to be I guess. um but your tax assessment is based on a bunch of things um it's based on the size of your property the amount of frontage you have, um, because that has to do more with municipal services, road paving, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, the size and type of house you have on it and whether there's any accessory dwellings on it. So if you have, um, like an apartment above a garage that you're renting out or a finished, um, apartment in your basement, um, the size and type of any outbuildings you have. So if you have a big shop or a big horse barn or um, if you're a huge dairy farm, for instance, you're going to pay a lot more taxes than someone that just has a little bungalow and a small four stall, horse barn type of thing. Uh, so it's, it's based on a lot of factors. Um, and I would say it's not uncommon for us to sell residential properties at three times the impact assessment. Um, Rural properties, I think it varies a lot depending on condition and outbuildings and what's reported to MPAC and what's not um, because that's where we tend to see a lot more discrepancies. I see it a lot in farm assessments that we pull um, a farm report, which in theory shows us all of the buildings on a property. And I would say it's pretty rare that there isn't either building that's been taken down that MPAC doesn't have as yeah, demolished yeah. on file or a new building, or it has an open permit when there's no open permits, stuff like that. So it's um, relatively inaccurate <laughs> yeah. for a lot of things. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, I guess, about MPAC or taxes in general. Um, oh, in terms of, I guess if you're buying an income producing property, so if you're buying uh, say like a big equestrian boarding barn, um, that's already a functioning business, and you intend to continue on with that functioning business. Often a portion of the sale price will be subject to HST, which that can be a pretty fun surprise if you're spending
0: I didn't know that.
1: yeah, a million or two or three um, on a property, and even if half of it is subject to HST, that can be a pretty a pretty fun bill. Um, if you're purchasing property, regardless of whether it's forced property or not, we do pay land transfer tax, uh, which is 2%, which is also a fun surprise. If you are working with an agent and a mortgage broker that haven't warned you about that. Um, yeah, I would say that's really it for taxes and that kind of fun thing.
0: Yeah, no, and it's, it's good. Good for you to be on here talking about it because I think that there's so many other things that really go into it and it can be complex and confusing for people. Um, and speaking of com- complex and confusing, initially um, we we looked at several different properties and actually made offers on on more than one of those before we ended up purchasing what we have now. And the process of appraising properties that are let's say like around Five acres to ten acres uh, that are also technically zoned as residential properties was quite grueling because for whatever reason, um, and you can explain this because I'm not a realtor. <laughs> I, I mean, we struggled because there would be let's say we're looking at a nine hundred to million dollar property. We get it appraised, that, and let's say it's like sixteen acres, and the appraisal only considers just the, the home, like the dwelling and not any of the land or not really necessarily the outbuildings. I don't know if that is how it worked, but then the appraisal would come back significantly lower than the, the price that we're paying for the home. And for people who are shopping, you have to make up the difference there. So that was a consideration that we did not know about. And you can explain that maybe a little bit more in depth than I can. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, so I would say that, that right there is the number one reason why don't shop for people shopping. Don't shop with uncle Bill because uncle Bill is a realtor and he thinks it would be fun to sell a farm. Um, because uncle Bill doesn't know unless he is actually like a rural residential, uh, realtor. If your agent has never spent any time on a farm or lived outside of the city, they're the last person that should be selling you any kind of rural real estate because they don't know fun things about septics and wells and heating and the biggest thing I come across is people shocked because their agent never mentioned that banks if you're getting a residential mortgage other than a few small independent credit union type places the big banks will only consider your house plus five acres and no outbuildings unless you don't have they'll consider either an attached or detached garage. So that's the only outbuilding you're getting is if you have a detached garage. So if you, there's the odd kind of weird nugget that is, you know, 10 acres and has an indoor arena and very expensive horse barn and super nice house. And people are shocked when it comes in $550,000 under what they paid for the property. So I would say now with how inflated the market is, um, sometimes that gap is a little bit less because you're actually seeing more people that want just a house and two or three acres. So they're actually paying more money than some of the ones that are a little bit bigger because they don't want the work for whatever reason. They just don't want to have neighbors, so to speak. Um, but it definitely can be something people are unprepared for. So if you are going the true agricultural mortgage route, which is more of a commercial mortgage, often you need 30% down, which is if you're spending a million or a million five, uh, nothing to shake a stick at. That is yeah, for sure. <laughs> um Yeah. So I would say that's the big thing. If you don't come in prepared with either because you're selling another residence, so you're expecting to have a very significant down payment, um, buying anything that is above five or 10 acres can be a lot harder if you're trying to sort of sneak it in under a residential mortgage. And there's some stuff I would say that that is less applicable to depending on where you're in one of the lenders um, I work for that specializes in uh, like sort of rural residential property mortgages. So we run dual reports on a lot of those so they can decide whether it makes more sense to finance it at a higher rate um, under a commercial mortgage or if they will try and get the lower rate and stay in a residential mortgage. So we run two reports side by side, two sets of comparables um based on the property being the house and only five acres and then the property um exactly how it is so the house with all the outbuildings and the full acreage considered so some of them i would say the difference is smaller if the land is mostly like (laughs) non-usable and not in a super high demand area um so like further north um or like some small pockets in Simcoe, that kind of thing, um, where if you're selling the majority of the property and it's zoned environmentally protected or something like that, and it's pretty dense bush, if you have five acres versus seven or 10, the value difference might not be huge. But if you're talking um, a house in five acres of pasture versus a house in 45 acres plus a barn and an arena, obviously those numbers are, are pretty far apart
0: yeah and and for people listening like if they're not overly familiar they haven't went through the process of it um obviously once you've made an offer then you have to get the property appraised and then that's where we're talking the difference between residential and commercial um deciding yeah. residential and commercial mortgages and they both have their pros and cons and like you mentioned commercial is significant down payment and a couple other things um so a lot of the times when we're looking at hobby farm properties where they're not like a fully operating farm but you have like a a little bit of acreage and like some value you know outbuildings and that kind of thing the appraiser isn't going to consider that in their price point so if they come back well under the price that you're going to be paying for the property you have to pay the difference so that's something huge to consider because we ran into that multiple times and speaking of like conservation etc there was multiple properties we looked at that you know advertised you know 10 to 12 to even sometimes like 19 acres of property and we would go and the real estate agents would be like yeah and you can do whatever you want and I called around to let's just in terms of talking about Ontario the GRCA and turns out that like almost all of that acreage is completely protected as conservation land and you cannot touch anything like say you have two acres of your home and like some outbuildings. And there was many points in time where I talked to them about those areas and you couldn't even, you know, take any buildings that there was like, you cannot touch any of this. And I think there was like a huge misrepresentation of a couple of the places that we looked at because we had no idea that there was anything, any restrictions on the land. So that's why I think it's so important to have a real estate agent that actually knows what they're doing um, because we ran into that multiple times. So when shopping for, let's say, a farm that, or we won't even call it a farm, like a couple of acres, a little hobby farm, maybe a little tiny bit of pasture space. Is there some major roadblocks that that buyers come mm-hmm. up to when they're specifically looking at having horses on their property?
1: Definitely. So a lot of that will depend on what township, obviously, you're shopping in because it can vary greatly. And a lot of townships also also have like a grandfather ability type thing. So if you are looking at purchasing property that under current regulations doesn't qualify to have horses, but has had horses there in the past and still has horses, generally you can continue the same use. Um, some areas will require like a notarized letter saying that there's always been horses on the property. So therefore the new buyer can continue that use. But yes, I would say you definitely want to know what the entire property is zoned, because if you get into stuff like the GRCA or the escarpment, um, the dream, dream crushers of Southwestern (laughs) Ontario, um, a lot of times, like if there's existing fencing and, and outbuildings and that kind of thing, you're free to leave what's there. If you want to change anything, you have to work with both of those governing bodies to do anything. And a lot of the times they'll only let you rebuild sort of on the same footprint. And it has to meet like all current zoning and regulations and whatever else they deem you need to jump through hoop wise. Um, But yeah, there is a lot of bylaws depending on where you're buying on the amount of acres you need to have to have livestock. And a lot of townships will sort of designate it by units of livestock. So um, five acres, you might be able to have twenty-five units of livestock, and they'll count like a, a small animal as one or two units, and a large animal like a horse as five units. So um, if you want to keep, I don't know, twelve sheep or five horses, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it it really depends on each individual place. So you definitely want to read through that, and then. Um, If you're backing onto conservation, um, you wanna know what the plan is with that in terms of are you therefore then in a a floodplain or a flood zone? So that can have some restrictions on what you want to do even though you might not be zoned actually environmentally protected. Like the conservation is, you might be still sort of in what I would call like a a bit of a yellow flag area um, that might impact your future use of the property. Um, So you want to know what your property or potential property is zoned through the whole thing, Um, like the the easiest or best, I would call it, um, sort of designations you'd want to look for is agricultural, obviously. A lot of places, they have different zones of agricultural. So A1, A2, A3, or rural residential, Um, those generally provide the most flexible use in terms of what outbuildings you can put up, how many animals you can have, if you can have animals. Um, So you need A, the right zoning, B, hopefully not too many restrictions, and then C, enough land to sort of meet those usage requirements or designations. So you might be zoned agricultural, but you need to have like for where I live, um, which is sort of a rural area in between Elmar and Listowell, we're zoned like rural residential Hamlet. And Uh, in our little I don't know what you'd call it community of 25 houses um it's a pretty predominantly Amish community um but so you can it's legal to have a horse here if you have at least an acre but it's illegal to have a manure pile oh gosh so it's sort of I think a loophole of them trying to make it so people can have a horse in their backyard, essentially, which is great for the horse. Um, sucks for me, I guess, if I ever wanted to bring one home, but, um, that's the way of the world essentially. So yeah, I would say you, you definitely want to make sure, you know, the zoning, you read through all of the bylaws to see what sort of hurdles you might come up and then call the bylaw office and call more than once, because I will tell you, especially calling the big zoning departments and calling the GRCA, you will get a different answer depending on who you talk to right. best case scenario you can get whoever you talk to to put it in writing over the phone or um like when you're talking over the phone have them email you if you can to say yes property one two three main street is zoned and suitable for having two to five horses um because the obviously worst case scenario is you buy something based on um the idea that you can have your horse at home and surprise you can't
0: right No, that's super helpful for people listening or considering anything like that. Um, Is there any like credits or grants or pros that you can kind of organize for people to consider when they're in the market for a country property? Is there ways that they can offset certain expenses? Is there interesting things that they can do?
1: Um, I would say in terms of credits, if you're a first-time homebuyer, you get a big credit um, on your land transfer tax um, on the first $400,000 you spend. So that helps a little bit. Obviously, in today's market, people are spending a lot more than $400,000, but $8,000 off is still a nice surprise, I think. Um, the easiest way, I guess, to get any sort of of credit um is if you qualify for farming activities which really varies a little bit based on the area too um, whether it's cash crops or animals um, but that can reduce your property tax by a fair bit um, something from like that's just zoned residential. you might be paying say six to eight thousand dollars a year and if you have a tax credit because of your farming activities it could be as low as Two to $3,000 a year. So that can be a pretty significant savings. Um, otherwise, I would say, unfortunately, we're all sort of in it for, in it for the long haul, I guess. You, you got to pay to play more yeah. or less what I'm getting at, unfortunately.
0: Yes. And there's a whole lot of interesting, uh, as you mentioned, expenses that can pop up as a surprise or things that people might not consider. So this is really valuable information for those that are considering it. Um, Is there any, oh, I I think we covered the limitations when it comes to property sizes and zoning and conservation, et cetera. Um, But have you ever had the experience where like someone has a certain idea about, you know, moving to the country and wanting some land or wanting to have a couple animals at home, whatever it might be, and they, they realized that their idea was completely different than the dream that they had. I know that I have clients and and friends that have purchased, you know, acreage and homes in the country. And like, there are so many things that they just didn't know they would have to do as far as maintaining mm-hmm. a property that size. Um, I don't know if that's your experience at all. Um, I think
1: I've been pretty lucky client wise that um especially those that have had to buy in this heated market um you have to be pretty sure by the time you're writing a couple yeah, offers and yeah, especially yeah. at that price point that it's something you want i think the hardest part is often if you have a spouse that's sort of like yeah sure honey we can move to the country um but it's not really their forte there's a lot of i think creature comforts you kind of give up uh if you like last night my partner and I had sort of extra long days of work and stuff around the house and I would have given anything to order skip the dishes or uber Eats, or whatever and there is one pizza place that delivers to our house and they don't deliver to our backdoor neighbors. So like we're on the, on the line and they never answered their phone yesterday. So it was like that kind of stuff. I think you can't just run five minutes to the store for whatever the three groceries you forgot. Um, when the power goes out. Yeah. I guess one thing we didn't talk about is, you know, do you have a backup generator? Is it wired into your house? So we are lucky enough, a, my spouse, an electrician, but also our house was wired for a generator when we bought it. So the power goes out and we just walk outside, plug in the generator, flip the switch and off you go. It's not life as usual, but you can run sort of all your important things. Um, so that's, you know, a consideration people aren't used to, or having to snow plow a long driveway. If you have one, like your place, for instance, your house is, you know, not a super long driveway, but if you want to get back to the barn part, um, you know, how are you going to plow that out for people? Or they don't think about that cutting the grass when you have an acre or two acres or three acres of lawn mm-hmm. is like a half day activity yeah. sometimes and um, day
0: in the fall and like i i love that you mentioned the power i think that's a huge consideration for people um because we're just not i mean able to get it back a lot of the time to in these areas of the country as fast as you would in in town and we don't have a backup generator, but we've been without power for multiple days, multiple times now. So that's next on our list. Um, yep. And that's extremely hard when you have horses at home, you're lugging, <laughs> oh gosh. But it is, yeah, it's it's a trade-off. And like you mentioned, there might be like farming accessories or lawnmowers or snowplows or things that you might have to consider because of the size of the property and just not being able to do everything necessarily by shovel in hand. Um, so that's a great one is there any like tips that you have for people who are shopping and will designate it in Ontario for these kind of smaller rural country properties um is there any red flags that they should be aware of when they are on the hunt and they're having to make these decisions really quickly because of the market
1: um I would make sure you are working like we said with an agent and a mortgage broker that's really experienced with um rural residential or small hobby farm type properties. If they aren't, you end up with a lot of last minute surprises. Like they don't realize that the lawyer or your insurance company is going to want proof that the septic tank was pumped or the well certificate or stuff like that. So you end up getting asked for those things the day of closing or the day before closing, which is just, it's super stressful. Buying a house is stressful enough on its own without those fun last minute surprises where you're scrambling. And then, yeah, I would say the biggest part is just make sure your ducks are in a row. Know how much of a deposit you have and know how much you have to play with. So if you are buying a $1.5 million home, can you afford it if the appraisal comes in at one-point-one? 1.2, what's your backup plan? And make sure your mortgage broker's on, on top or on board with that. Uh, a good mortgage broker, your agent should be able to send them the listing and they should be able to give you a max value that they think you should be able to bid on, uh, which in today's market, when you're having to bid firm, a lot of the time is invaluable. You, like it's yeah, It's not to say life or death, but it is. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much, pretty much. And I would say, as a listing agent, if a buyer's agent can send me a pre approval letter with their mortgage broker, and especially if it's a mortgage broker um, that I'm familiar with and I know is going to get the deal done, that carries a ton of weight with my seller. If you have two offers that are close, look, they're going to take the one that has proven that they're able to close, not the one that says, oh yeah, I kind of sort of maybe have uh, financing approved with my lender because I can definitely tell you as a buyer's agent, people love to say that when they don't. Um, So yeah, really make sure you have all your ducks in a row. Be flexible. Like I said, not your first home doesn't have to be your forever home. You can't change the location, but sometimes changing the location changes what you can buy by a lot. Right. My partner and I definitely would not be in the house we are in now. If we had stayed 20 minutes, 10 minutes, even I think closer to the the region, I drive everywhere for work. So location's not really as important to me. Um, but he does not, he works for <laughs> works in the region. So, uh, this was sort of like our max distance at the time, which saved us a lot of money. It sucks a little bit on one end to drive a little bit further, but I think that was a bit of a trade off we were willing to make, at least at the time, to be able to get the house we wanted. And I think that's something a lot of people are going to have to be realistic about, especially right now when there's honestly just not a lot of inventory. So if you are really set on being in your new horse farm home type place by the end of the summer, for instance, I think you have to be realistic about where that's going to be. You might be going, you know, North instead of South or East instead of West, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So I would say stay flexible, have your ducks in a row, work with someone that really knows what they're doing. And yeah, that's, I would say those are the the most important things.
0: Absolutely. I mean, this was great. I, of course, in my own selfish ways, like to pick everyone's brain on these topics, because I think it's super interesting, but I also feel like there's a lot in just my own circle of people that are like shopping or dreaming or looking or purchasing, whatever it might be. And this has really been so informative. So I appreciate you taking the time to record this and uh, and let everyone know all of the little interest intricacies when it comes to, you know, purchasing their little dream hobby farm, at least in Ontario, lots of things to consider and such good information because I wish that I had literally just we just talked for an hour and all of this information I could have had before we we went into purchasing our first property <laughs> um so I really appreciate it thank you very much
1: yeah thanks for thinking of me
0: okay that is everything for this episode wasn't in a good one I feel like I could ask these types of questions all day because it's just Such an interesting topic having been through it and also having been through the same surprises that we're mentioning in this interview like our propane expenses and our septic issues and drilling a new well and all of these things that come with owning a property that is rural and not brand new so very interesting if you guys ever have any questions for me uh, please let me know i have some huge dreams for what i want to do with our own property um, but of course everything takes time and money specifically a lot of money um and i look forward to kind of sharing those with you as we go definitely our place looks completely different than when we looked at it when we moved in and even like summer 2020 this past year we've done a lot and i'm really looking forward to learning how to make things more efficient and just provide like better care for my own horses it's definitely been a learning curve. Um, As far as buying properties go, I mean, this is a huge challenge for everyone. If you're interested in getting your foot in the door, I know that this can be a really frustrating process. I know of many people that have been shopping through the pandemic and have not been able to secure a home or secure their dream home, and it can be extremely disheartening. So I hope that this information helps you to be completely re- prepared if you're making those decisions. And I'm sure that Allison would be happy to um, provide you guys with more information and she is local. So you can reach out to her if you are shopping and you want an agent for this specific area of real estate. And I will let you guys go because I'm babbling again, but I wanted to thank you so much for your listenership. We have surpassed the 20,000 audience member mark and it's just really great. I appreciate you guys so much. Um, I love this. I love talking to other professionals in and around the industry and the entrepreneurship topics. So I'm excited to explore that this season and I will see you guys next week.